Well, it's not compulsory, but you'll be depriving yourself of a great intellectual and emotional experience if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind if we go to sleep. Wow. <laughs> I should say our lady and gentleman, or our sweetheart and gentleman. It's, of course, a very great pleasure to greet you again tonight. We're saving all of our holiday greetings, introductions, and whatnot for a more formal occasion tomorrow night. This was Glee Club night, and so we're going to confine the formalities to the least possible amount. Glee Club do well. Very, very well. I think we ought to give a hand to the Glee Club. <laughs> Uh, I understand the musical geniuses of the occasion were George Donovan, Arnold Alexander, Mr. Westerland, who had a very beautiful imitation of a banjo, and, and Ted Grant of Cleveland, the southerner from, I think it's southern Cleveland or some part of the south. And that anyway. great Lexington baritone, yeah. Bill Townsend. Yeah, uh, I don't know about you uh, people, but I made an amazing discovery today that I'd like to tell you about very briefly by way of introduction to the speaker. Do you know another war occurred in this area known as the Revolutionary War, a minor skirmish between a few thousand troops? Never heard of it. And uh, it was a, a sort of... It was a sort of preliminary bout to the main event. Our speaker tonight is an expert in the main event, but he's also done some research in the battle, in war, the war with it, which interests us. Uh, the editors of our publication made it unnecessary for me to give any lengthy introduction. All of you who want to know all about Mr. Hatch should read the middle column on the last page. That's my speech tonight with respect to Mr. Hatch. He's going to speak about the area in which we happen to be. Mr. Hatch, to be very brief about the matter, is in charge of research in this area relating to American history. I'm sure that all of us will take very great delight and interest in what he has to say, Mr. Hatch. And at the end of his talk, we will throw our usual questions at him. Uh, we uh, have told him that we're a very unceremonious bunch, insolent, impertinent, and sometimes unruly, but we try to get as much as we can out of every speaker, and we try to give a few odds and ends to it. Mr. Hatch. If the questions get too rough, I'm going to change from answer uh, uh, to moderator, uh, with your permission. Before I get on with the uh, few remarks that uh, I've prepared here, I would like to say that uh, as a member of Colonial National Historical Park, and personally too, uh, we are most uh, happy to have you uh, visit down in this area. Uh, the park, uh, Colonial National Historical Park, uh, unlike many of our national park areas, uh, you can't tell what it is by its name. Uh, it is known as Colonial National Historical Park uh, for the reason that it includes two uh, major historical areas, uh, Jamestown and Yorktown, and in addition, uh, it includes the Colonial Parkway and the Cape Henry Memorial. 
I believe you came over from Gloucester this afternoon, and uh, perhaps you caught a glimpse of Yorktown from the new bridge there, and uh, I believe you came over the Colonial Parkway uh, from Yorktown into Williamsburg, and you saw a little of this uh, fine old colonial city uh, late in the afternoon. Uh, we hope, we, well, we know that a good many of you have already been here before, uh, perhaps there are some who have not. Uh, we hope that on this brief visit uh, that you will see enough. Uh, we hope that it will sort of tease you uh, into com coming back again, because uh, we of the National Park Service uh, here would like very much to have the opportunity uh, to show you over the Yorktown battlefield area, and we would also like very much to have the opportunity uh, to show you around over at Jamestown. Uh, there was a lot of history, you know, that went on uh, prior to the war that uh, we're interested in tonight. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it will be sometime in 1956, I believe, uh, that we will reach the halfway mark. In other words, it'll be that time uh, before uh, the time since we have become a nation has been equal or is equal uh, to the time that we uh, were colonial. Uh, that time comes in 1956. And I believe it will be part of uh, uh, celebrations in this area. And of course, we are all looking forward to uh, 1957, uh, when there'll be, uh, we know, uh, a big anniversary celebration uh, for the 300th anniversary of the founding of the first permanent English settlement at Jamestown. But I, I seem to be getting a little away from the, the field. Uh, the remarks that I have here uh, deal uh, principally with the American Revolution uh, and with the Civil War. Uh, the subject, uh, two sieges of Yorktown, uh, the end of one campaign and the beginning of another uh, is the topic that uh, I have selected uh, uh, to cover this uh, situation. In this pleasant uh, restored city of Williamsburg, we are impressed with its beauty and its serenity, which we find on every hand. The same quietness and charm we find in the little village of Yorktown, some 13 miles to the east, and at Jamestown, just six miles to the west. Here, in a brief span of 20 miles, we have three of America's great historic shrines, which tell us much of our country's beginnings, from the first permanent English settlement in 1607, uh, through our long, formative colonial period, to our struggle for independence and its successful climax, climax at Yorktown in 1781. <coughs> As we see these areas today, there is little that reminds us forcibly of real war with its violence and its destruction. This is true even when we view the now soft lines of the Confederate forts at Jamestown and the patina-covered howitzers and mortars behind the reconstructed embankments at Yorktown. It is equally true when we see the cannon standing silently in front of the governor's palace here in Williamsburg or when we visit the restored colonial magazine uh, just two blocks from where we are at this very moment. Our best efforts have failed to convey the real feeling of occupation by enemy troops and of actual war with, with its resulting suffering, death, and wanton destruction. But despite the peace and tranquility of these areas today, such has not always been true here. Twice within less than a century, in the Revolution and in the Civil War, this celebrated triple shrine of history was the scene of war. And even before this, it was the scene, too, of still another campaign, a brief campaign which, though local in nature, had considerable meaning for the future, 
I'm speaking of Bacon's Rebellion of the 1675-1676 uh, uh, time. In 1862, Yorktown and Williamsburg were overrun in McClellan's cautious and unsuccessful drive up the Virginia Peninsula toward the Confederate capital in Richmond. This was the last open combat that has touched us here, although the Lower Peninsula has felt the heavy impact of preparation and the aftermath of later campaigns and other wars. For this bit of, of our Atlantic coastal area is indeed a highly strategic one. The Peninsula Campaign of 1862, of particular interest to you at this time, came just 82 years after the historic Virginia Campaign, which terminated in the Siege of Yorktown, the engagement which, from a military point of view, virtually ended the War for American Independence and stands as one of the great battles in our history. The fields and woods of this locality, over which Magruder, Johnston, and McClellan maneuvered their armies, are the very same over which Washington, Rochambeau, Saint-Simon, and Cornwallis moved their units in the late summer and fall of 1781. It was in Williamsburg that Washington, in mid-September, 172 years ago, perfected his plans and completed the organization of his allied French and American army before the assault on Yorktown. Washington himself took quarters in the Wythe House, adjacent to Bruton Parish Church. Available quarters in the town were used, including the college and the homes and public buildings, while the bulk of the troops, some 16,000 strong, bivouacked in outlying areas. At the end of, as the end of September approached, Washington was ready to launch his attack on Cornwallis from the land side. Bold strategy, careful planning, and in the word of George Washington, Providence were about to pay a huge dividend. Years of struggle, privation, and suffering were about to end. The revolution was drawing to a close after seven eventful years. The long fermenting forces underlying the American Revolution had first produced armed conflict at Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775, and the war for independence was on. In May, colonial forces took Ticonderoga, Crown Point, and Fort George in a drive that carried beyond Montreal in Canada before it had spent itself. In June, the Continental Congress named George Washington to command the American forces, and a few days later, the engagement at Breed's Hill was fought and the siege of Boston was joined. In the next year, the British withdrew from, from Boston and opened a drive on New York. Sir William Howe took New York, but Guy Carleton did not push down from Canada to join him and split the colonists as had been planned. Howe uh, then moved against Washington, forcing him into New Jersey, and early in December across the Delaware. The Battle of Trenton fought on December 25, and that of Princeton, followed with Washington going into winter quarters at Morristown. In 1777, the British renewed their plan to split New England from the middle colonies. John Burgoyne moved south from Canada, and Howe was scheduled to move up the Hudson to join him. Howe instead directed a drive toward the capture of Philadelphia, and Burgoyne was forced into surrender at Saratoga on October 17, an American victory that helped to make France our ally and proved to be a turning point in the war. In the winter of 1777-1778, Washington and his troops were suffering at Valley Forge. In 1778, the British evacuated Philadelphia, and George Rogers Clark began his campaigns, which, when completed, left much of the West, as then occupied, in American hands. Late in the same year, the British, with base headquarters in New York, shifted the theater 
of the war from the Middle States to the South to undertake the conquest of this area since success had not come in the North. The Southern Campaign led into the Virginia Campaign and that directly into the Siege of Yorktown. It was on December 29, 1778, that Savannah fell to the British, and soon afterwards, Augusta followed. In 1779, Major General Benjamin Lincoln, recently named commander of the American forces in the South, with the aid of French naval support, was unable to relieve Savannah. Following this attempt, Lincoln withdrew into South Carolina and moved to Charleston. Here, he was forced to surrender, together with his troops, on May 12, 1780, to a superior British force under Sir Henry Clinton, now commanded the British forces in America. With Clinton from New York had come Lieutenant General Earl Charles Cornwallis, his second in command, who assumed direction of British fortunes in the South when Clinton returned to the North. The British Army, having occupied Georgia and much of South Carolina, next aimed a thrust at North Carolina. On August 16, 1780, at Camden, South Carolina, Cornwallis met Horatio Gates, the new American Southern commander, and resoundingly defeated him. The occupation of North Carolina was delayed for a time by the surprising and morale-lifting American victory on October 7 at Kings Mountain, where frontier units under William Campbell practically annihilated a British detachment under Major Patrick Ferguson and seriously damaged Cornwallis' projected schedule. In December, Nathaniel Green took command of the American Southern forces and he made it increasingly difficult for Cornwallis to maneuver as he had planned or even to hold the country. Green divided his force, sending a part of it under Daniel Morgan into the Piedmont section of South Carolina to threaten the enemy's left and holding the remainder near Chiraw, South Carolina. Cornwallis dispatched Tarleton against Morgan at Cowpens. On January 17, 1781, Morgan, in quote, one of the most unexpected victories of the war, end quote, severely defeated the British detachment, and Cornwallis then put his troops in motion. Both Green and Morgan retreated, not risking a general engagement with the British, who were all the while pressing for battle. The American forces were united in February, and then Green drew back into Virginia, where he rested his men and gained some supplies and reinforcements. In March, he felt stronger and recrossed the Dan River to offer battle. Cornwallis accepted the challenge at Guilford Courthouse on March 15. The British Army won the battle, yet was so weakened that it was unable to capitalize on its victory. The loss in officers and men was so heavy that the army was, as Cornwallis said, crippled beyond measure. And Cornwallis moved to Wilmington on the coast in April for the avowed purpose of recruiting and refitting his exhausted force, leaving most of North Carolina unoccupied. In Wilmington, he faced the choice of moving south to the scene of former successes, to seek reinforcements for more campaigning in North Carolina, or to go north into Virginia. The Carolinas had been traversed, but the country was still not controlled by the British. In Virginia, by uniting his troops with those there under General Phillips, perhaps he could conquer that state and sever the colonies in the middle, a plan close to the heart of English military strategists. He failed in this, as is known, yet he decided to move into Virginia and make a try for it. On May 20, 1781, he reached Petersburg, where he effected a junction with Phillips, and now the Virginia campaign opened. Facing Cornwallis at this time was Lafayette, short of supplies with his 
American light infantry and militia, a force capable of harassing the British, but not strong enough to offer battle. Consequently, as Cornwallis pushed into the state, Lafayette fell back. He eluded the British general, who hoped to take him, yet, not could, yet could not prevent pillage and the destruction of supplies. As Lafayette withdrew northward ahead of Cornwallis, British raiding parties reached as far as Charlottesville. At this point, the chain of events abruptly took a new course. Lafayette's position changed from that of pursued to that of a cautious stalker. On June 15, Cornwallis turned east and began his march to the coast. His troops were tired, the weather was hot, and he needed a base close to the coast. His troops, uh, Lafayette, who had, not, who had now been reinforced by Pennsylvania troops on the Mad, Mad Anthony Wayne and Mountain Riflemen, had eluded him, his supplies were not abundant, and the conquest of Virginia was obviously going to be a difficult one. As he moved down the peninsula between New York and the James, Lafayette came close behind him. Cornwallis halted here in Williamsburg, where there was word from Clinton in New York requesting a part of his troops for defensive operations in the north, an order later canceled before it was executed. To meet the demand, Cornwallis moved on from Williamsburg toward Portsmouth, crossing the James River at Jamestown. It was near the point of crossing that the Battle of Green Spring took place on July 6. This engagement developed when detachments of Lafayette's force came too close to the British. Cornwallis had been effective in concealing his movements across, uh, crossing the river. The engagement was short but spirited. It involved good generalship and a boost for the morale of American troops. In the end, however, Lafayette's force withdrew and Cornwallis continued his march to Portsmouth. At Portsmouth, Cornwallis received instructions uh, to retain all of his troops and to select and establish a base. His engineers recommended Yorktown as most suitable. Having an excellent harbor, it would be well adapted as a base for more campaigning in Virginia. On the strength of this, he brought his entire force to Yorktown and began to fortify his newly selected base. He completely ringed the town with the main line of positions, some 10 redoubts and 10 batteries took over public buildings and private homes when necessary to billet his troops, moved in supplies, and foraged in the nearby countryside at will. In advance of his main line, he constructed outer works at, at strategic points on high ground and across natural avenues leading into Yorktown. Among these were the now famous redoubt number nine, southeast of town, and the Fuselaire's redoubt on the west, which commanded one of the roads to Williamsburg. In front of town, he cut down all trees and dismantled all houses for a distance of 1,000 yards to give the, his observers a clear view and his gunners good shooting in case of attack. Across the river from Yorktown, he entrenched the garrison at Gloucester Point and thus controlled the river. His transports, supply boats, and armed vessels he anchored in the York just off Yorktown. He seemed well established in a good base. All was not well for Cornwallis, however, and he did not have full knowledge of significant plans that had been taking shape over a period of months. It was in June of 1781 that Washington, then with Rochambeau and his French army in the general New York area, had definite news of the Comte de Grasse's projected operations in American waters with his considerable French fleet. It was about this time, too, that Washington received more adequate information on Cornwallis's activities in Virginia. Washington, it seems, had hoped that de Grasse, on his arrival, would work jointly with him around New York, but other factors changed this. The final plan took form in August, 
even while Cornwallis was, was erecting his fortifications about Yorktown. The plan was that the grass would appear in the Chesapeake Bay to hold the sea, while land forces led by Washington, including the French army of Rochambeau and the forces of Lafayette, would launch a major operation against Cornwallis by land. It was the successful prosecution of this plan that led to the surrender on October 19. Leaving as strong of forces was available to contain Clinton in New York, Washington secretly sent his troops and those of Rochambeau in motion, set them in motion. On August 19, the men began their march toward Virginia, and it was September 2 before Clinton was sure of his destination. Down through Morristown, Brunswick, Princeton, Trenton, and Philadelphia, to the headwaters of the Chesapeake Bay, they came on foot. Their destination was Yorktown and Victory. At the head of the Elk, at Baltimore, and at Annapolis, they boarded light transports and the frigates sent up by de Grasse, for de Grasse had ably carried out his part of their overall plan. De Grasse reached the Chesapeake on August 30, having missed an encounter with Admiral Hood, who had been on the watch for him as he moved north from the West Indies. When sufficient intelligence was at hand, Admiral Graves, British naval commander, then at New York, combined his force with that of Hood and bore down to the Chesapeake to dislodge de Grasse and to keep the sea lands open for Cornwallis. In this he failed. The naval engagement between Graves and de Grasse that took place on September 5, just off the Virginia Capes, ended with the French fleet holding the blockade and the British fleet badly crippled, returning to the north for repairs, rest, and reinforcement. It meant that Cornwallis was sealed off from outside aid at a critical junction. Britain had lost control of the sea. It paved the way for the land operation that followed. Washington's French and American forces continued down the bay in transports, landed along the James, and moved into Williamsburg, which became a kind of base headquarters. Washington came overland by way of Mount Vernon and joined his troops. About mid-September, the bulk of Washington's force of some 16,000 men was at hand. American regulars, French troops with Rochambeau that had come down from the north, the Lafayette force that had been holding what it could of Virginia, militia, and the troops of the Marquis Saint-Simon, brought up from the West Indies by de Grasse. Artillery was assembled, supplies collected, and the troops organized and rested. On the 28th, the fresh troops moved out on foot for Yorktown, about 15 miles distant. Just outside of Yorktown, beyond Yorktown Creek to the west, contact was made with British pickets. Then in a wide arc, the troops spread around Yorktown at points a mile and a half, two miles, and two and a half miles beyond the town itself. They formed a ring from the river on the north, then to the west and south, east to Wormley Creek, and east to Wormley Creek. Here, encampments were set up. Scouts and engineers made their way forward under cover of trees and ravines to reconnoiter the British position. The decision was to attack Yorktown by siege operations. Cornwallis's position seemed so strong that open fighting was ruled out. Cornwallis, uh, in the engagement, in the encampments, headquarters were established, plans were drawn up and perfected, the soldiers ate, slept, and worked. Artillery parks were laid out, supplies were brought in and assembled, and cemetery areas were noted uh, to be used if necessary. All the while, the British soldiers and seamen continued to dig and build, their fortifications. Within a few days, all was in readiness for the opening of the first line of positions. Tons of earth had been thrown up as batteries and redoubts and parallels were built. A siege meant operations from behind fixed positions. 
The British were obliging by pulling in from their outer works between Yorktown and Wormley Creeks, thereby eliminating the necessity of the fighting necessary to take them. These outer positions blocked the last natural approach to Yorktown. Cornwallis was undermanned, his army numbered about 7,500, and he expected supplies that never came through. He hoped to withstand the attack behind his main line until the British Navy could reopen the sea lanes into Yorktown. Moving in between these two creeks, uh, the Allied army threw up its first line, the first parallel. At the point where it crossed the Yorkhampton Road, the Grand French Battery uh, began to take form. And near its York River end, this battery, from which Washington is reported to have fired the first cannon in the bombardment of Yorktown, was built. The main section of the parallel lay south and east of town. To the west was the French trench, a continuation of the parallel. From the battery on this trench, the French gunners found good targets in the British vessels in the harbor. <coughs> Despite the persistence of British fire, on October 9, the first artillery round was fired into Yorktown. The next day and the next, the tempo quickened. British guns answered, including those stripped from the ships for installation and shore batteries. Artillery was effective, and in this department, the British could not keep pace. They were confronted by superior ordnance in amount and in size. Slowly, the wreckage piled up, particularly on the southeast side of Yorktown. Houses were blown apart, cannon knocked out of place, and even the fortifications began to crumble. Johann Doyle, witnessing the, witnessing the bombardment from a British ship in the harbor, related that on October 11, for example, and to quote, there was stupendous cannonading on both sides during these 24 hours. 3,600 shot were counted from the enemy, which they fired at the town, our line, and at the ships in the harbor. They did, mu they did much damage and robbed many a brave soldier of his life or struck off his arm and leg, end quote. At this point, Washington ordered the, the opening of a second parallel nearer the enemy where his artillery might be brought even closer. This was begun on October 11, yet could not be completed until British redoubts uh, numbers 9 and 10 were reduced. In gallant and heroic fighting at, at night on October 14, uh, these positions fell. 400 French, Frenchmen under Count William Dupont cut their way through the abattis, went down in the moat, and then scaled the side of the redoubt, passing through gaps cut in the faces. They accomplished their mission, but 25% of the party fell as casualties. While they, were, while they were reducing number nine, 400 Americans under Alexander Hamilton charged number 10 with unloaded muskets and fixed bayonets. They too succeeded and with less loss in a shorter time. For the British, this was the beginning of the end. Following the capture of the redoubts, the second parallel was perfected and a large battery built near number nine. Cornwallis knew that Yorktown was now untenable. Before giving up, however, he made two tries to better his position. One was a sortie against two batteries of the second parallel, which achieved nothing. The second was a try at moving his effectives across the York River, which likewise ended in failure. Consequently, on the morning of the 17th, Cornwallis sent out his flag of truce. The flag was recognized, hostilities ceased for the moment, and negotiations by letter followed between Washington and the British general. This brought some agreement on terms and commissioners were designated to meet at the home of Augustine Moore to consider the British proposals to surrender. The meeting, at intervals a bitter one, took place on October 18. The four officers, two, 
two British, one French, and one American, finally agreed on a draft which followed the pattern set by the terms granted to the Americans when the British took Charleston just 17 months earlier. Then they left the now historic Moore House, built about 1725 by Lawrence Smith, and the Allied officers reported back to Washington. On the morning of October 19, Washington made a few changes in the terms and sent them to Cornwallis for signature. He signed the Articles of Capitulation in Yorktown. The Allied leaders signed and captured British readout number 10, which had become a part of the second parallel. At noon, some of the British works were taken over, and at two o'clock, the British army, led by Brigadier General O'Hara, Cornwallis was ill, marched out from Yorktown, their drums beating a ballad which tradition tells us was the world turned upside down. At about the location of the Grand French Battery, O'Hara met the Allied officers. From this point, Major General Benjamin Lincoln conducted him between columns of American and French troops on down the Yorkhampton Road to Surrender Field, but the officers and men of the British Army performed the last act of the formal surrender. The struggle for Yorktown was over. In reality, the revolution had ended. The historic battlefield at Yorktown lay quietly following the siege of 1781. The prosperity of the town continued to decline. The pace, aided by the destruction wrought by the British occupation and the French and American artillerists. One observer commenting on Yorktown just after the siege described it as a town of, quote, 250 houses, the most of which were shot through like a riddle. Four had the whole side burned out with the explosion of shells, and the whole at present in a ruinous state, end quote. The devastation of Allied artillery had, for example, forced Cornwallis from his headquarters in Secretary Thomas Nelson's home uh, during the height of the siege. By the time of the Civil War, much of the commercial supremacy that had been Yorktown's had, e had ebbed out, and the once flourishing trade port, first established in 1691, was now a mere village. It was to echo again, however, with the roar of siege guns and the marching feet of soldiers and to furnish shelter for combat troops. General John B. Magruder was to make it the pivot of York to James River Line and work to this end began as early as 1861. It was, in the first, it was the first formal barrier to the progress of McClellan's army toward the Confederate capital in 1862. It was on the road to Richmond. McClellan, first from training the New Union the new Union Army, and believing that he had left ample troops to protect Washington, opened his peninsula campaign in March 1862, when units of his field army, assigned to the task, began to disembark at Union Hill Fort Monroe and in the Newport News area. He was hoping for a quick thrust up the peninsula and was expecting naval aid in the reduction of the Confederate positions in Yorktown. His optimism waned when the naval support was not forthcoming in full strength but with the Merrimack, Virginia, in the vicinity, and when his troop strength was unexpectedly reduced, even though he far outdistanced his opponent, Magruder, in men and artillery. Though worried and cautious, he launched his offensive on April 4, as he sent his army forward in two columns. The one under General Heinzelman was to proceed directly to Yorktown by way of Hampton and Big Bethel, the latter the point where Prince John Magruder, on June 10, 1861, had won the first land engagement of the war, much to the concern of Northern commanders. The other, under General Keyes, was to proceed along the Newport News-Williamsburg Road to pass Yorktown on the west and to circle around behind it. Thus, a reduction of the post was to be by siege, now more than ever a necessity, McClellan thought.
Delayed by transport difficulties and rain and muddy roads, it was the second day out before the Union soldiers reached the Confederate positions. Heinzelman's men contained their, attained their objective below the environs of Yorktown. However, Keyes encountered the unexpected Confederate defenses at Lee's Mill and was able to proceed according to plan. The Magruder line was based on the Warwick River, which together with its tributaries, cut almost across the peninsula and on Yorktown. It was further up the peninsula than the line that had first been considered. From the heavy works at Yorktown, there were curtains and two redoubts that bridged the gap to the headwaters of the Warwick. Existing dams and some new ones built for the purpose, together a series of five, deepened the water and increased the bogginess in the low marshy terrain. Each dam, particularly that at Lee's Mill on the Newport News Williamsburg Road, was covered by earthworks and artillery. On the right, the line crossed Mulberry Island and ended at, ended at Skiff's Creek and the James. Insofar as the Confederates were concerned, this was a purely defensive line, one of the points on which Joseph E. Johnston, who replaced Magruder on April 14, criticized it. It was, however, a line difficult to be turned as long as the Confederates held both the York and the James Rivers. The Merrimack still maneuvered in the lower reaches of the James, and the Confederate batteries in massive works on the Yorktown cliffs enjoyed some immunity from opposing gunboats. Then, too, there were Confederate positions at Gloucester Point across the York River. At the onset, however, Magruder's 11,000 men were far from enough to man this somewhat lengthy line, although he made a bold show of what he had, and McClellan, it appears, was impressed. Additional strength continued to reach the Confederates until the peak was reached about May 3. Then, with some 56,000 men, Johnston faced McClellan some more than 100,000. By this time, however, Johnston had decided against a fight on the Yorktown line. In the first few days after contact was established, McClellan spent the time in reconnaissance with no thought, it seems, of seriously attempting a breakthrough. Siege operations he considered very necessary. The army was deployed along the whole front, and General Fitzjohn Porter was named director of siege operations. With this, the Union Army began to dig in, constructing heavy works, some of which remain well preserved to this day, especially those in the Wormley Creek area, just below Yorktown, and in the area of Dam Number 1. The Confederates, finding, finding the time available, proceeded to strengthen their positions, and reinforcements began to come in. When Johnson took command, Magruder was assigned to the right sector, James Longstreet the center, and Daniel H. Hill had the assignment of Yorktown and Gloucester. Gustavus Smith was held back towards Williamsburg in reserve. While siege materials were being assembled and artillery was being moved up, reconnaissance and skirmish were used to distract Confederate attention and to threaten, although not seriously, a breakthrough. The most serious affair of the siege took place at Dam Number 1, about halfway between Lee's Mill and Wynn's Mill on April 16. The objective was to impede Confederate work on the dam and, if possible, to gain control of it. A weakness had been reported here, and McClellan ordered reconnaissance and force. The attack was made by Vermont men from William F. Smith's division. It carried the Union troops into the Confederate rifle pits, but when this was not followed up, they withdrew. Despite the fact that weakness was demonstrated and that floodwaters were shown to be shallow, no lesson was drawn from this affair. McClellan continued with his siege preparations, planning in all some 15 batteries to mount more than 100 guns. Previously, on April 11, it is reported that General Porter won aloft in Professor Lowe's observation balloon 
and when the moorings broke, drifted over the Confederate lines to be happily saved when a favorable air current made it possible to land safely near McClellan's headquarters on Wormley Creek. On April 24, preparations were ready for opening the first parallel. This line, based on the York River, a short distance from the Moore House, where the surrender terms had been drafted in 1781, extended westward to the headwaters of Wormley Creek, then across the Yorkhampton Road toward the Warwick, some 1,500 yards from the Confederate works. Confederate artillery had negligible effect in slowing the uh, work. The Union commander held his fire until all was more nearly in readiness, except for battery number one near the river below the Moore House, which went into action when it was noted that artillery was being landed in Yorktown. Full-scale attack was scheduled for the morning of the 6th. Immediate success with small losses uh, was hopefully anticipated with silenced Confederate batteries, a faint attack on Lee's Mill prepared to be extended if opportunity presented itself, and Union gunboats passing up the York River unmolested by quieted enemy water batteries. The main attack was scheduled for the area between Yorktown and the headwaters of Warwick River. But the attack never came, and Yorktown was not subjected to the devastating bombardment which had been planned for it. The Confederates fell back, leaving the works about the town almost intact. Works originally built by Cornwallis, but extensively strengthened and extended by Magruder. A withdrawal was planned as early as April 30 to be effective on May 3. Johnston was never happy about the Lower Peninsula strategy and the Magruder line, involving, it was thought, poor engineering qualities. In any case, with the superior Union manpower and artillery, as now displayed by McClellan, a stand at Yorktown was no longer feasible. Muddy roads slowed the trains, and it was necessary to postpone the movement of troops for some 24 hours. About midnight on May 3, the heavy guns which had been active to divert McClellan's attention ceased fire and were spiked, since it was necessary to leave these. By the morning of the 4th, the evacuation of Yorktown was complete. The Confederate withdrawal from Yorktown gained momentum uh, with a confused start complicated by deep mud and crowded roads. Private H.R. Berkeley of William Nelson's battalion, who earlier in 1861 had helped to build the battery at Jamestown, was now stationed at Yorktown. He tells us that on the night of May 2, our forces began to evacuate Yorktown about dusk, but the Williamsburg Road was blocked by ambulances and wagons. When the troops could not pass, they were ordered back into Yorktown. In the withdrawal, Longstreet from the center and Magruder's division took the Newport News-Williamsburg Road, while D.H. Hill supplied the rear guard out of Yorktown, followed by Jeb Stewart's cavalry. About midday, they reached and passed the line which Magruder had had the foresight to build about a mile in front of, to the east of, Williamsburg, on the high ground between the York and the James Rivers. This was where the peninsula is narrow and not far distant from the line of the stockade, built as protection against the Indians by the early settlers about 1630. The Confederate soldiers were tired and hungry and hopeful of rest when they trudged wearily, th wearily through Williamsburg. It was not long, however, until Johnston was grateful for this line which he had hoped would not be needed. It consisted of a large fort, Fort Magruder, at the junction of the Hampton and Yorktown roads, flanked on either side by a series of smaller positions. The whole took advantage of creeks which cut deeply into the peninsula on each side. It was here that the pursuing advanced units of McClellan's army would need to be delayed. In Yorktown, the Federal Troops of Porter's Command 
had found that excepting the heavy guns, there was little left of military value. The Confederate buried bombs along the paths and roads and near wells and springs proved of nuisance value for time. McClellan, it seems, was not fully prepared to take advantage of the sudden Confederate withdrawal. Caught somewhat unawares by the swift turn of events, he seemingly lacked a general plan for immediate execution, but took measures to put his army in motion. Porter's division was assigned for the moment to occupy the works at Yorktown. It, with Franklin's division, was to go waterborne to West Point. George Stoneman's cavalry first took up the pursuit and was followed about midday on the 4th by other units of the army. Hooker's division was dispatched first over the shorter road on the right, followed by Kearney. Smith's division, and then those of Couch and Casey, set out over the longer route to the west. Stoneman succeeded in overtaking the Confederates and engaged in a running skirmish with Stuart's rear guard cavalry. William H. Emory moved to the west, <coughs> assisting him. When about one o'clock on May 4, the Confederate cavalry was driven in, Johnston ordered the occupation of Fort Magruder and its line of redoubts, and the Battle of Williamsburg was about to get underway. By later standards, but one to protect the rear while the Confederate withdrawal continued. However, it took more than 2,200 Union soldiers and killed and wounded, and some 1,500 Confederates. With two brigades and two batteries of artillery, General Lafayette McLaw was stationed to hold the Williamsburg line while the Confederate withdrawal retreat continued. He quickly deployed his men and held the Union forces, halting their advance. During the night, Hooker was in place in the center of the line, and General Smith and Stoneman, General Smith and Stoneman, with advanced cavalry and artillery, were on the Union right. Kearney and Couch were to the rear. That night, two of Longstreet's brigades replaced those under McLaw. H.R. Anderson, the new Confederate commander here, on the morning of the 5th, faced the Union skirmishes and the artillery of Hooker's and Smith's <coughs> divisions. General Grover's brigade opened the Union attack for Hooker early on the 5th. Reinforcements were sent up to Anderson by Longstreet, and these were placed on his opponent's left, where the Federals, chiefly Hooker's men, were pressing with vigor. With control established here, Anderson went over to the offensive and forced the enemy to give ground here and inflicted some punishment. Hooker, at one point, sent Emory's cavalry on the move to the extreme left flank, which he found blocked by College Creek. He did, however, engage in some skirmishing and made, made observations as Hooker had ordered. In the afternoon, as Hooker's troops continued to carry the fight on the Union left, he received some support from Kearney's division. Fighting grew more intense all along the line. <coughs> Late in the afternoon, the Union troops under Winifred Hancock of Smith's division, moving around, seized an unoccupied Confederate redoubt on the right, Confederate left, of Fort Magruder, and quickly brought in artillery to fire against the main Confederate position. Longstreet, in command of the Confederate stand, now feeling that the situation was growing worse in this sector, called for a brigade, and it proved to be that of Jubilee Early, to be available here. Early moved up after stopping for a time on the campus of William & Mary College, sending two regiments to further stabilize the Confederate right, while he was poised to move in on its left where trouble seemed to be developing. In the meanwhile, D.H. Hill's three, brig three brigades took position behind Early. Hill and Early were eager, and plans were set to attack from the rear the unseen yet galling Federal battery, although its strength and that of the infantry here, some ten guns and, and five regiments, 4,000 men, were not known. 
The attack was launched with the Virginia 24th and 38th Regiments going in with Early, as well as some of Hill's strength, the 5th and 23rd North Carolina. Before Early was wounded in the shoulder, the opposing battery had been forced back into the woods. Union infantry, muskets, as well as shell, grape, and canister, particularly the former, were enough to cause a halt. In the confused fighting, Confederate units became tangled and Federal units were thrown off balance. At this point, no pursuit of Hancock's brigade was attempted and Hancock did not respond, did not respond with a sustained counterattack. The action ended. It was late in the day when McClellan reached the scene of battle. He had stayed on in Yorktown to direct water transport up the York, leaving the field command to Edwin Sumner. Action was not resumed on May 6, but Johnson was determined to resume his retreat toward Richmond where the issue of McClellan's campaign would be decided. He had brought, he had brought a little more time, yet not so much as at Yorktown, and broke contact, leaving, in, in the consequent haste, some 400 wounded men in Williamsburg. Once again, Virginia's 18th century capital was to see military occupation. Most of McClellan's men could get only a glimpse of quaint old-fashioned Williamsburg, as one soldier put it, as they passed through. They, although for a much different purpose, like you, were moving on to Richmond. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hatch. Now, who would like to start the discussion? Uh, uh, Warren Reader. Well, to get to your last question first, uh, about all we are left to do is to take the uh, good general at his word. Uh, it is a matter of fact that he was not too ill uh, within the next few days to attend parties and other get-togethers that followed after the surrender. And as for the artillery, uh, the artillery used at Yorktown uh, had effective ranges up to all 1,000 to 3,000 yards. Uh, they had extreme ranges of much greater distance, but the more extreme became the range, the less effective the artillery. <coughs> Does that cover your question? George Lilly. Uh, you, did, uh, you did a very thorough job, and you had a darn short time to cover an awful lot of years, but uh, your only comment on the fact that uh, Cornwallis was unable to get relief was the, was the fact that Hood's fleet had been damaged by the grass. Uh, uh, wouldn't you say that the unfortunate circumstances to follow whether Jack Byron's uh, ships coming from England was more important than that particular good engagement? Uh, no. Uh, following the engagement on September 5, uh, the English fleet uh, and the French fleet drifted within sight of each other for several days. They drifted all the way to Cape Hatteras. Uh, the British did not have uh, did not renew the engagement, de Grasse being extremely cautious because that kind of victory for the French Navy at that time was, uh, that kind of luck couldn't go on. Uh, the British were usually masters of the sea. De Grasse was not anxious to renew the engagement. Uh, uh, Graves did not force him. Uh, but when Graves pulled back to New York, 
that left no British ships in the Chesapeake and uh, that left the Grasses fleet in the Chesapeake and as long as he was there, he blocked the route uh, unless the English were to best him in a military engage in a naval engagement. What I was referring to was the 15 ships which had been sent over under Byron and 14 of them were dismasted on the way. If they arrived, it would have been a very much different story. Yes, had the, had the British fleet been stronger, the outcome might have been quite different. Uh, I'm Morrison Worthy. What was the nature of the vegetation cover and the terrain uh, in the bridges between here and uh, Yorktown and between here and Richmond and North from here at that time, both at the time of the Revolution and the time of the Civil War? It's now a second growth flood. What well, was it at that time? I, I happen to have a very uh, uh, good answer for that immediately around Yorktown because I happen to be working on that problem right at the moment. I, uh, I think we can assume uh, that it's uh, very likely applicable to the whole area. In 1781, most of the high ground uh, that, that was, could be cultivated uh, was, in, was under cultivation. Uh, the wooded areas were, were confined principally uh, along the creeks and ravines. Now, by 1781, uh, that was still late enough for, the, for some old fields to have been found. You see, they'd been farming this land now uh, by that time for getting close to 200 years, 150 or more, and uh, some of the land was going back to, to forest cover, but not in the proportion that you see now. That would have been much more forest-covered land at the time of the Civil War. Marshal Rissman. Uh, Mr. Hatch, am I correct in going back to my high school history that Benedict Arnold came down sometime in the last years of the war and burned or partially destroyed the city of Richmond? That's quite correct. Uh, uh, prior to Phillips, who was a commanding officer in Virginia, uh, when uh, Cornwallis joined the British forces here, or united with them, uh, just prior to Phillips, uh, Arnold had been the British commander here. He had replaced General Leslie, or had been sent into the state after General Leslie. Uh, Arnold did uh, campaign, but I believe that at the time that Cornwallis arrived, or shortly thereafter, he left the state. But he was in the state and commanded the British garrison. It seems to me, Mr. Hatch, that the time the siege of Yorktown came about, the British had had just about enough of the American Revolution. If it hadn't been Yorktown, it might have been some other engagement about that time. Would you say that was true? I would, uh, would say that is quite true. The uh, war was not uh, looked on with great favor in England. In fact, as I understand it, at that time, the whole question of empire uh, in England was one that uh, sort of hung by a thread. There were those uh, uh, who felt that the empire wasn't worth the trouble. Uh, this isn't an answer to your question, but I don't, it's a point that I didn't uh, emphasize enough, I believe, in the prepared talk, and that is uh, that we can easily underestimate uh, the value of the French aid at Yorktown. The entire sea uh, force was French, and on land, uh, half of the land army was French. Uh, I think we can say safely that without French aid at Yorktown, there would have been no Yorktown. 
Now, perhaps a revolution would have ended elsewhere under entirely different circumstances. But certainly, there would have been no Yorktown without the French. George, let's see, Pete, wait, Pete Long, not calling you. Uh, Mr. Hatch, uh, you seem to approve, I got the impression... Louder! That you, I got the impression that you approve the uh, placement of Cornwallis's men in Yorktown. Now, weren't there other positions less landlocked uh, towards Portsmouth, <coughs> Norfolk, Newport News, anywhere around in that area that might have been far superior, closer to his sea lines than a Yorktown, which would be blocked off? Well, uh, Cornwallis, uh, uh, in an attempt to find the best possible site to establish a base, and when he moved into Yorktown, that was his purpose, not to hold up, but to establish a base for future operations. He wanted to get the best, best uh, site in the locality. Uh, prior to that time, the British headquarters, such as it was, it had been small before Cornwallis arrived, was in Portsmouth. Uh, the engineers recommended to Cornwallis that he come to Yorktown. And knowing the locality here, uh, Yorktown is a reasonably fine uh, spot uh, with control of the sea. You have a magnificent harbor there in the York River, and the ground's a little higher, and there's perhaps less marshy terrain uh, in and around Yorktown than there would be anywhere in the Norfolk Hampton area. George, wait to the gentleman there. You. Momentarily, I have your name. Cornwallis, I believe, was twice Viceroy of India after, the, after about 1800, and I think uh, his military career was, uh, uh, did him much credit in India. Uh, there doesn't seem to have been any uh, uh, trouble caused by his surrender at Yorktown at all, that is, so far as his advance in the army was concerned. Uh, as for the French victory at Yorktown, I, 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 I still myself like to think of it as an Anglo, uh, as a Franco-American victory, because that land army which surrounded Cornwallis and forced the surrender by land uh, could not have been done by the French alone. And the American regiments that were there, and certainly that uh, Virginia militia, uh, deserve an awful lot of credit uh, for the part that they played in the, uh, in the engagement. Uh, I do think that uh, sometimes we hardly give uh, Washington enough credit on one little point uh, uh, at Yorktown, and that is he played a magnificent role in the way he uh, led the American and French armies to work together and the way he held de Grasse in the Chesapeake. After the Battle of the Virginia Capes, de Grasse was scheduled to return to the West Indies, and having defeated the British, uh, at least uh, kept them from breaking the blockade, he was uh, a little bit content uh, to rest on that engagement rather than to try a second, uh, a second <coughs> naval engagement. The British did, uh, some months later, meet de Grasse again in the West Indies, and it was an entirely different story. George Lilly. This will be short. Uh, 
There are those who contend that Sherman's march to the sea, leaving Hood's army in pretty good shape, was a very bad military maneuver, and leaving that when Sherman reached the sea, his, his army in Grant became inaccessible to the West, and had Hood been able to maneuver properly, the entire West might have fallen to the South. Now, I know that can be belabored. But it is my contention that Washington's move to Yorktown is equally serious in that had uh, Washington been in front of Yorktown, leaving Clinton in New York, and had Cornwallis been able to be moved from Yorktown to New York, that the colonies would have had a very much different story. And the reason why I questioned you earlier about foul-weather Jack Byron was that he put to sea with 15 ships, which could have done a very fine job on the grass, and had that fleet not been disbanded, dismantled, dismantled rather, 14 of the 15 ships on the way, Washington would not have been proven to be such a fine military strategist as we later thought. And Yorktown might very well have turned into be a very serious trap for the colonists because Washington turned his back on Clinton's army and left the door open to Cornwallis for relief and for removal to New York, and bang, your, your story is very different. That was why I questioned you on Powell Weather, Jack Byron. Well, that, uh, uh, that, that certainly is a, uh, a point well taken, and certainly uh, things would have been much different. Uh, this, uh, I might add this for whatever it's worth, Washington had been, had been watching Clinton for quite some time, and uh, uh, Clinton was not uh, uh, seemingly inclined to be very aggressive, and I don't know whether or not that helped to sway Washington in uh, uh, stealing away or not. Uh, I just tossed that personal thought in for whatever it might be worth. Uh, as chairman, I'm going to take the privilege of asking the last question. You mentioned about Alexander Hamilton leading his men capturing one of the redoubts. As I recall, Hamilton was the aide-de-camp of Washington. Wasn't he a little distance away from headquarters at that time? How did he happen to get into the fighting? Well, uh, that uh, uh, raises an interesting point, and there is uh, 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 a little story on that that could quite well be true. I believe there is, uh, it, it, it can be documented. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, that day, October 14, was officer of the day, and the uh, honor of leading the charge against British Redoubt Number 10 uh, uh, was assigned to another, and Washington and uh, uh, Hamilton sought permission and approached Washington and, and uh, stated that being officer of the day is not that my job. And uh, the story goes that Washington said, yes, it is, and I will uh, cancel my first order and place you in command. Thank you, Mr. Hatch. And now the order is on to Richmond, the bus is outside.